Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugel saying, hey guys, welcome. This is Sirius XM Progress, Channel 127. Uh, where to begin? Uh, thank you for joining us. Hello to everybody listening live, our evil army of the night. As you know, if you listen live, you can join the conversation anytime. We are live and interactive, 866-997-4748. We're just like cable news, except we listen to you. If you are listening... On the John Fugelsang podcast or the SiriusXM app or SiriusXM On Demand, hello to our army of daywalkers. We hope you are well. We love you guys. Thanks to the miracle of Pandora mergers who listen to us on tape. We take your mail at johnfugelsang.com or our show Facebook page. We read it. We love you guys. You're always welcome if you're bored on a weeknight to call up as well and join the Jamboree. Uh, Chris Hauselt is our executive producer coming to you live from the South Carolina studios because darn it, he just can't quit the Confederacy. Thea Harper is running this beast, usually from Brooklyn, but tonight we are together high in the Howard Stern Tower, 267 stories above Gotham. And it's great to have you. We have one of the best experts in our regular rotation to talk about today's events and one of our most ferocious non-experts in our rotation to talk about today's events. Professor Corey Brettschneider of Brown University will be with us shortly. Also tonight on the show, Martha Plimpton. Uh, She she sat down for another interview, hadn't had Martha on the show in a while. All I knew was I wasn't going to talk about the fucking 80s. I wasn't going to talk because if I see Martha Plimpton try to do an interview one more time and they ask about dating River Phoenix or the Goonies, Martha, she doesn't want to talk about being in the fucking Goonies. So she has a really funny really funny new show that is uh, that is premiering a very, very funny sitcom with her Raising Hope co-stars. And it's called Sprung. It's about people in jail for COVID who get out of jail. And she plays the crime den leader mom who puts them all up. And uh, it's a really fun interview. Also, we just taped a great interview with John Boyega from Star Wars, who has an amazing new movie called Breaking. Uh, we're going to bring that to you. And also, uh, we're going to have a big town hall with Ken Burns, who has a, his new documentary is about the Holocaust. And we will be having a live town hall with an audience with Ken Burns. I, I got to be honest, I, I, I saw the film. Uh, on the Holocaust by Ken Burns, um, comedically fails on every level. I I laughed maybe twice the entire, maybe twice I laughed the entire nine hours, and I was just being kind. One more thing. Uh, Thanks to everybody who uh, watched today on the Stephanie Miller Show and who watched on News Nation, where I found myself debating 
minimum wage law with Ashley Banfield. Good times. Uh, if you uh, want to come on the East Coast, we are doing Stephanie Miller's Sexy Liberal Tour. This year it's being called the Save Democracy Tour. We're only doing one date on the entire East Coast, and it's the first time in nine years. It's the original tour lineup of Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, and myself, plus lots of cool special guests. Last time we played there, Daryl Hammond did the show with us. And over the years, our guests have included Martin Sheen has done it, Rob Reiner, Lily Tomlin. We get lots of fun people. This is going to be the midterm kickoff party. We want you there. All of you moral depraved people. Uh, Just go to sexyliberal.com Saturday, September 10th at Sydney Harmon Hall in Washington, D.C. We'll also be playing Chicago and then closing the mini fall tour at uh, the Saban Theater in Los Angeles. All right, let's get to it. I am so pleased to welcome Corey Brettschneider back to the show, especially after a week like this. Corey is, of course, a professor in the poli-sci department at Brown University. You've read his analysis in The New York Times, Politico, and Time. You have to get his book, The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents at your favorite bookstore. It is the civics class you wish you had as a grown-up. Also get his Penguin Liberty series books on uh, free speech, impeachment, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's notable cases. Professor Brettschneider, welcome back. Thanks, John. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. And if you had asked me last week, we'd be discussing the Espionage Act. I probably <laughs> would have said, OK, tell me more. It, it's really not the kind of law that makes the news that much. And so I've been dying to talk to you about it. <laughs> no. And, uh, you know, but we do know that since we spoke, I think it was the day after the warrant that was used to authorize the search of Mar-a-Lago has been published and it had on it the acts that were relevant that Trump would possibly be charged with. And one of them mm-hmm. turned out to be, it was actually published by Breitbart. I don't know that they knew what they were publishing, but that oh, one of did. those, one of those pieces was the espionage act. And now that raises all sorts of amazing questions. I think to sort of calm things down at the least, you know, radical level, it could mean that he's being charged with provisions. It's a pretty broad act uh, passed during the Wilson administration for, I don't think, not good purposes. It was like a new sedition act in some ways. It was used, for instance, to prosecute uh, the presidential candidate, Debs, the socialist candidate uh, for president. It has a, a really kind of not proud history being used, for instance, against whistleblowers and in some cases in which, you know, it was important that the information that that was disclosed was disclosed. But it, so it, it's very broad, but there are parts of it that are, are you know, kind of innocuous and that would be relevant here, uh, including very relevant. You, know, you resist, re- resist a public official, resist official orders telling you to turn back documents, which is what looks like happened here. Then there are parts of that act that look like it would cover exactly that behavior. So that's the most obvious thing here. But who knows? Maybe there's a wider investigation that he had nefarious purposes in mind uh, that would seem like something out of a, a, a novel or a film. But with this guy, you just don't know what he was planning to do with this document. So the provisions that really are about, for instance, giving documents to foreign powers uh, could be relevant. And yeah, in I mean, thank scenario. you. Maggie Haberman is all over my airwaves today, Professor, trying to convince me that Trump just likes to keep souvenirs and trinkets of things. He's into collecting (laughs) stuff. And that's why I mean, I don't my biggest concern about all this, Corey, and why I think we'll probably never be told the answer. I don't think Trump packs his own boxes. 
I mean, I don't know who it was that may have put nuclear secrets or information about spies on a payroll, any number of things into a hotel basement, a hotel that entertains foreign heads of state all the time, where I, I assume it's a simple key card. But there had to be probable cause of espionage for the warrant right. to cover the Espionage Act, right? Of some aspects. So, I mean, that's part of what I was saying, that there was there could have been probable cause that he was, you know, selling these documents to a foreign power or something like that. That's the most extreme. But there are parts of the act that are less serious in the sense that they're really about being in possession of documents that you're not supposed to have and in particular resisting uh, orders to turn them back in. So when the archives and other public officials, including the FBI, were saying we need this stuff back, and they refused or they lied, that could be part of what, what's going on here. So it really, it's such a broad act, and that means that the, the range of what he might have done is everything from selling information to the Saudis, our worst fears, or, you know, in exchange for uh, golf, uh, uh, you know, his golf yeah. course is being used in this new league. That You know, that's the more... Oh, no, no, never. No, ha- ha- <laughs> hang on, you never know. It could be, it, let's say it could be Israel's nuclear secrets yeah. in exchange for Prince MBS right. money laundering $2 billion through Jared's new venture right. capitalist. You yeah, know, we, there, there's so we, many, right. so right. many variables. Be, it would be, be so irresponsible to speculate on, Professor. There are so yeah. many possible multiverse of corruption we could dive into. And, um, but, and there also is stuff, just to be clear for listeners, that, that is not that, that, you know, is about resisting, basically refusing to give back stuff he was supposed to give well, back. And that's, that's, that's what it's really about. Yeah. Oh, so that, that's what I want of, to ask you. One of those two. Because <laughs> in this case, I think... Um, the phrase Espionage Act is a bit of a misnomer. What we're talking about here is a phrase that I've been hearing a lot, which is willful retention. It's uh, Section 793E of the Espionage Act of 1917, willful retention and disclosure of national defense information. This is what reality winner pled guilty to, and she did four years in jail. Uh, This is what former FBI agent, uh, I'm sorry, defense contractor Christopher Glenn Uh, did. He pled guilty to willful retention of classified national defense information under the Espionage Act, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. We we talk about why did Merrick Garland wait so long. Well, it turns out that we now know they, they weren't waiting. They realized in the archives these documents were missing last year. They made requests. Trump sent over a bunch of boxes. It wasn't everything. The archives wrote back again. Trump's lawyers lied and said he had returned everything. It seems like the the Justice Department went a long time before they finally executed a raid. But it, it, if we're talking about the Espionage Act, it seems that it has to be the extremely, Professor, extremely willful retention when he essentially lied about it multiple times, allegedly. It, yes. You know, I think it could be that simple that, that he, you know, was supposed to turn these documents back deceived people and claiming that he was giving everything he had and then he had stuff in the safe that he wasn't supposed to give back. And it's a very important and good point that you bring up, which is this isn't something that's just been sitting there since 1917. It's been used again and again for people doing things that are not as serious as this. I will tell you, I mean, just to pivot a little bit, I think there must be more here. The idea that the thing that brings Trump down is going to be just the retention of these um, you know, these these boxes, uh, I think there must be so much more that they're looking at and that they have information. And so when you build a case, you know, you have your really solid stuff. It looks like he's almost certainly guilty of basically having stuff he's not supposed to have in violation of the Espionage Act. But there's got to be more there. 
I mean, you know, one thing, too, uh, my hope is that this doesn't replace the, the more serious charges, in my view, um, uh, it, it, concerning both January 6th and then also if these documents are being used to be sent to a foreign power. Obviously, that's a whole other order of magnitude of, of seriousness. But the idea that we would just get them on this one thing, which is having the boxes, I worry that that would bolster the arguments of the opponents who, who would say, you know, this is a political prosecution. So there, I think there is more, and I think there has to be more to really bring bring this prosecution. Professor, what, what, if, what if it's not about a prosecution? What if, just hypothetically, that it's not about taking him down or getting him on yeah. something? What if this whole thing is just they wanted their stuff back, he wouldn't give their stuff back, they sent a bunch of agents there, let him know. They were able to watch it on closed-circuit camera. There were lawyers there at all times. If there was anything untoward done, you know Trump would have released the video by now. What if they just got their documents back, and that's the end of it? Because I don't want to rain on anyone's parade or anyone's rage mm-hmm. fest, but I just have a very strong feeling we are never, we the people, never going to be told what this was all about. It just seems like there's too many levels of, of classified information that we could ever be told to anyone's satisfaction why this had to happen, and maybe the whole thing just goes away before it can be a campaign issue. I mean, the documents are top secret, so in that sense, some of them were just definitely not going to find out the details of what was in there. But I guess I just think, you know, this is common sense, but that the idea that Garland was going to risk the wrath of a significant portion of the country and jeopardize, you know, the investigations that are ongoing into the election fraud from you know what had been the main main investigations for papers that aren't you know really dangerous to have in Mar-a-Lago it must be at least that the the material was extremely sensitive sure. and probably too that they were worried about you know spies basically entering Trump's sure. Mar-a-Lago and and getting them so there had to be at least you know I think the documents can't be innocuous. There has to be you, you, you mean you mean could the guy who owned keys to every room allow someone <laughs> working for a visiting dignitary to go in the basement if he felt like it? Yeah, yeah it's, it was <laughs> very dangerous. It, it, yeah. it, the whole thing is insane. And if Obama had done it, he'd already be in jail and his family, too. Yeah. But but, you know, I, I, I don't know, Professor. It, it just seems there's. I've spent the last week talking to guests and talking to listeners about why would Trump have this information if it wasn't for money. Don't get me wrong. I love the idea of the FBI downloading all of his hard drives and servers. Now we probably have more compromise on him than than Vladimir Putin does at this point. But um, I I just I can't understand why he would have such information. I mean, mean, why would you hang on to this stuff? You know, look, I, I Trump has made me realize that sometimes, uh, you know, it's not paranoid to think that there are people out there trying to undermine American security for their own personal benefit. We've seen that from him over and over again. And when that's your view, that you care about profit over country, we saw that in our many discussions, for instance, about the emoluments clause, his willingness to sell access, basically, to people who Mm -hmm. were staying in the hotels. And we did see that with the Saudis, that they were staying in the Trump Hotel basically, you know, upping the level of access that they're able to get by taking floors out there. Why would Mm -hmm. it be such a far stretch that he would think, well, these documents, you know, are mine and I can sell them as I wish and do with them as I wish because I was the president. He has that kind of narcissism. Yeah, he does. All of that, you know, makes it possible that the kind of espionage investigation that's going on here 
is the worst possible kind of one. The 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 you know film version where where Trump is thinking about it's also the, secrets. It's also the best and version. Of say, it, maybe though. it wasn't even American secrets. Maybe it's yeah. secrets of our foreign power. But but also it's the worst. It's the best scenario because now Trump gets to do his favorite thing, play victim and just turn rage of people uh, on. And my God, Donald Trump has already shown us how he can direct the rage of large amounts of other white people. How should the threat of violence from Trump supporters play into all of this? I mean, they're definitely, definitely trying to use the threat of violence to get the DOJ to back off. Look, you know, I, I think we both for years during the Trump administration we're on the side of saying that this is a true threat to democracy. He could topple the system. And that's the consistency here, too. And, you know, we, we see a theme that things he did during his presidency before we were talking about seeking profit, um, you know, at the expense of the of the public welfare and even public secrets. I'm sorry, even government secrets. Uh, he's willing to do that. And here I think he's willing to risk violence. Yes. In order to preserve his own hand and. We saw that on January 6th, and I think that's exactly what he's doing now, is, is really kind of trying to threaten the Department of Justice into backing off. And unfortunately, and we talked about this last week, they have a policy of not wanting to get involved in politics, not wanting to influence elections. And some of the more conservative elements of the Department of Justice might interpret that not as ba- backing down, not as backing down. They would call it, right. well, we don't want to get involved in the well, politicization of the department. That would be a huge mistake. They have to, I, I think, agree. see this for what it is, which is a, a threat by a madman, a, you know, more akin to a terrorist. Garland has experience, of course, prosecuting terrorists, um, in the McVeigh case, for instance, and that's what he's really dealing with here is a former president turned terrorist. Corey, uh, listen, but we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to ask you about a former congressperson in our final moments, a congressperson that voted with Donald Trump 93% of the time, named Liz Cheney. She has now been removed from office for not lying about one thing. She still thinks the Iraq war was great, still thinks that climate change is a myth, still thinks the rich should pay lower taxes. Um, Is she a hero for telling the truth about one thing, or is she just trying to save her party is she going to is she really fighting for democracy this is a big voter id law lady or is she just trying to save her party yeah i mean i don't want to underplay certainly the horror of the uh needless war in iraq or of the role that she's played in eviscerating american civil liberties and just to add on to that <laughs> even though she has a gay sister feeling willing to say sell out yeah. gay rights and to to really stir up anti-gay sentiment in this country so, look, I, I'm with you on that. But what I think is, and it's sort of, I'm going to um, kind of w- walk a line. I do think she's trying to save the Republican Party, but in a way that's honorable. We need to have an opposition party yes. in this country that's not opposed to democracy, but that's part of uh, showing loyalty to the Constitution and having policy disagreements. I think that is true as much as I dislike the Republican Party of the 1980s. I think that's largely what we were talking about, disagreements within a common framework of uh, at least some semblance of not trying to undermine democracy. You didn't see, for instance, the attack on um, Lawrence Welsh, the independent prosecutor in Iran-Contra that you've seen on Mueller. Right. Uh, Now, how do we get to that? I think we need a Liz Cheney, and I do think she's a hero for what she did. She lost her seat. She knew she had no chance of retaining it. And yes, she might go on to other things, but 
what the commission did, what she uh, and Representative Thompson did, uh, was resurrect this idea that we can't just let this go. We've got to defend the Constitution against a true danger and showing us the details of what happened on yes. that day. How horrific, connecting it to the overall strategy, which was a coup. Uh, history owes her, I think, a debt of gratitude. And so in that sense, absolutely, she is a hero. Professor Brechneider, thank you so much for joining us every week and making me feel smarter than I have any right to feel. What is the best <laughs> way for our listeners in our evil army of the night to follow you and keep up with your work? Uh, you could read my work on QuarryBrettSchneider.com and uh, every week here or listen to us uh, have these great discussions and uh, look forward to the next one. Such a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Quick break. When we come back, it's my conversation with the great, great uh, Martha Plimpton about her new series. This one, she's brilliant. We'll be right back on Progress. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast Welcome back. So Martha Plimpton is having a terrific year. I mean, she's always had a great career, as you know, from the Goonies and the Mosquito Coast to Parenthood to Raising Hope and her Tony nominations and her Emmy for being on The Good Wife. Uh, And she's in London most of the time. So there's that. That alone would make it a terrific year. But she received tons of acclaim earlier this year for her performance as a grieving mother in the wrenching film Mass by Fran Kranz, which needs to be a stage play. If you haven't seen it, pause us right now and go watch Weep and Come Back. And now her former Raising Hope showrunner, Greg Garcia, has cast her, along with her Raising Hope co-star, Garrett Dillahunt, in Sprung, a relentlessly funny new series that takes us way back in time to the early days of COVID when toilet paper and information were in short supply. Uh, A group of recently released nonviolent inmates take shelter together in the home of one of their moms if they join her robbery crew to earn their keep. It's a really great marriage of broad comedy And surprisingly sharp satire, and Martha is hilarious as Barb, the leader of the gang, who try to right wrongs and only steal from those who deeply deserve it. Martha Plimpton is somebody who's always used her fame to advocate for others. Twitter got a lot more boring when she left, and it's so great to see her in another hilarious, smartly written comedy. Martha Plimpton, welcome back. Hey, John, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. That was great. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, for being had. How are you? How's the family? How's the dogs? How how is COVID uh, and the never ending coming out of COVID been for you? 
Well, you know, it's been a crazy roller coaster, my friend, you know, as it has for all of us. Um, you know, it's been a wild and and uh, oftentimes confusing, oftentimes maddening couple of years. Um, but, you know, we've all done our best. We've done what we could do. Um, I was um, an early uh, adopter of the vaccine. You might know that I was part of the Pfizer trial mm -hmm. uh, very early on. And so I was lucky enough to participate in that. And so um, I've had my vaccine and my boosters. And so I've been lucky enough, knock wood, to remain COVID free. Um, and uh, so that's lucky, um, you know, but other than that, I've just been, you know, I've also been lucky enough to be working, you know, turns out during a pandemic, people still really need their entertainment, you know? So mm -hmm. I've been fortunate in that I, I get to, you know, keep telling stories and doing what I do and hoping that people like it. And so many great characters you get to build during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, yeah. I understand that that this show sprung was sort of a sort of a last minute gig for you. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was actually. Um, and actually, I was a little bit peeved to be perfectly honest that Greg and and Garrett were getting together again. I was like, hmm, how come they get to do a show together and I'm not in it? And it was, you know what I mean? It was kind of yeah. It was one of those things where I texted them both like, hey, guys, how's your new show going? And they were both obviously very sweet <laughs> and hilarious. But um, but, I, you know, I was working on another show at the time. And uh, and then I don't know, I, I one day in London, I was making dinner on a Friday night and I got a call from Greg and and he said, uh, so what are you doing from now until November? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> Why do you ask? And he said, well, could you get on a plane on Sunday, go to some fittings on Monday, maybe dye your hair and start shooting a TV show on Tuesday with us? And I said, absolutely. Where's the plane ticket? Send me the scripts. I'll read them on the plane and I'll see you there. So you so actually... I basically had I had like two days. Yeah. To sort of figure out this character and what I was going to do. I mean, luckily, Greg is such a brilliant genius writer. It was all there. You know, I just had to kind of come up with her physicality and, you know, find her sort of where she sort of lived in my body. And and then it was off to the races, you know. But I would imagine in your process, Martha, when you're working on the physicality of a, a character, you're you're not doing it on an airplane from London to L.A. Yeah. I mean, you put this together really <laughs> fast. Well, the crazy thing is, is that, you know, because it's Greg and because it's Garrett and because... I know and I love these guys so much and I trust them both so implicitly, you know, um, it was very easy for me to just kind of fold right in there and just kind of find what, you know, I what find whatever little hole that I needed to fill. You know what I mean? Right. right. And uh, and they made it really easy. And I just, you know, I just and I also I had an image of my in my mind as I was reading it of what this woman would look like, where her mm -hmm. sort of center of gravity would live. You know what I mean? Yes, and, I do. Um, yeah, and so where did it live, Martha? It, where, where did it? Where did it live? Where did you find it? Because I just love the thought of you in a red eye flight doing all this, all of this <laughs> character work. And... Well, it kind of lives in her pelvis. Yeah, you know she's kind of. She's kind of got that root chakra thing going on, you know. She's she's <laughs> yes. very she's very deeply rooted into the ground. And then once we got into the costume fittings and found out what her look would be, which largely involved, you know, 
mainly camel toes and enormous, enormous breasts. Um, <laughs> then, then, you know, then it was just about the hair because, you know, if I, if I don't have the right hair, then I'll forget it. Um, and so I kind of based her on this, uh, this Disney villain in one of my favorite Disney movies, but I'm not going to say which one, cause I want people to, I want people to use their imaginations. Right. A Disney villain who has a shock of whitish hair. I mean, I, I, I gotta be honest yeah. at first, when I first read about the show, I thought you were just going to be too young and too pretty to play a character oh. like Barb, who's, you know, <laughs> grandma age has a grown son in prison. Um, right. What does it mean to be a hair actor, Martha? I've heard you <laughs> use this expression before, and I kind of yeah. love it. And the ghost of Stanislavski would vomit, but I kind of believe it, too. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I, some some actors are, you know, work from the uh, inside out. Uh, I kind of work from the outside in, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of a it's more of a Grotowski than a Stanislavski situation. You know, <laughs> I just kind of go for it and, you know, follow the scene and the action wherever it leads. And then but hair is a big part of that. You know, if you got if you got the wrong hair, you know, you just can't live in the person. You don't, you look in the mirror. You don't see that person. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what it is about hair. But for me, it's critical. There's this amazing scene in Wings of Desire where Peter Falk is in Berlin to make a World War II movie, and he's just standing in front yeah. of a mirror trying on hats. And he's trying on yes. dozens and dozens of hats until he finds the hat that tells him what the character is. And that's what I that's thought right. of when you said that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great movie. That's an awesome that, thing to think of. Yeah. You know, I, I, I got to say, the show is a lot like Raising Hope to me in that I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by how sophisticated it really is beneath the humor yeah. and that as yeah. as broad as the humor is, there is a real authenticity to it because this is a show that makes a lot of commentaries on, on class, on prison yeah. culture, on the drug war, coronavirus, mm -hmm. and Trump. It's, it's a deeply political show, but in a very subversive way. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess you could put it that way. I mean, I think... I think Greg Garcia has always really been masterful at being apolitical, but while sort of, you know, being a jester about yes. the truths and the, the things in our world, you know, and, and, and giving us an opportunity to, without, of course, minimizing any of these things that you mention, but giving us an opportunity to sort of recognize parts of them and find the humor in them and laugh at them. You know, um, I mean, there's, you know, there's no real political, nobody in this show has a political affiliation, you know, like Barb just kind of thinks the orange menace is funny, you know? Right. Yeah. But, you know, he's just fine. <laughs> I think in the first episode, yeah, you, she, uh, Garrett asks yeah. you what you, how he is as president and you say he, he's funny. He makes me laugh. Yeah. I don't know, but he's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and, and I think that that's really important because, you know, you don't want to, I don't know, breathe down anyone's neck with any, you know, necessarily political stuff or polemical exactly. stuff, I should say, um, you know, but you want to give people a chance to come together and see the commonality in all of us and what we all share in common, which is this, you know, basic humanity and a basic goodness, one hopes, and, yes. you know, um, and a desire to do the right thing, regardless of how one gets there. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, you definitely. know, that that initial confusion that we all felt at the beginning of this thing, which, you know, nobody can deny there was a lot of confusion. 
that's kind of what I love about it. No one knows anything about it yet. Uh, people are waiting yeah. in long, long lines to get tested in their cars. I mean, it really is a time capsule from only two and a half years ago, but it does yeah. show how far we've come. And it's really, I think, the first great COVID sitcom. <laughs> if that's a thing. I, you know what? You may be right. That's really, that's great. Thank you for that. Thank you. Of, of course. Uh, what, what's the process like? I know you, you came into it, you know, uh, late in the process. The other actors were, were cast, but I'm very curious, having worked with uh, with Garcia before, I mean, what is the process like on set for a show like this? So much of the, the, the dialogue is so tight. Everyone's timing mm. is great. Do you like to rehearse when you're doing television work? Do you get to rehearse with this cast? Well, you know, there are times when it's great to rehearse and I like it. And, you know, yes, we do generally do like a sort of rudimentary form of rehearsal where we block it out and we, you know, but but Greg is, uh, you know, there's not a lot of improv in his shows. I mean, aside from physical stuff, because he's such a brilliant writer. I mean, you yeah. know, as Garrett says, why why would you want to, you know, I mean, he's put it he's got it all there for you. And so, you know, it's not it's really a matter of just being willing to jump in, you know, and, mm -hmm. and not ask too many questions and know that, you know, what, what what's in Greg's head is going to come out the other side, you know. And, uh, you know, also, look, look, we don't often have a lot of time. I mean, you know, we, we're shooting this thing in a few days and That's and right. we got to make our days and all of that kind of stuff. But it's it's always a blast. I mean, this was a different kind of situation because Greg directed every single episode and he wrote every single episode himself. You know, obviously yeah. he has a crew of writer friends that he works with too, who are awesome, Bobby Bowman and T TV's Tim Stack and, you know, all these great writers. But, um, but uh, yeah, so we just kind of go in there and, and do what Greg says, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it and, works. And somehow it, it, it ends up working out. Well, no, I mean, it's it's great proof of the auteur theory in, in TV comedy, although you have a moment uh, with a with a Q-tip that's some of the best physical comedy yeah. I've seen on TV in the last year. I could tell it's I could tell they give you a lot of creative leeway and it seems very collaborative. Yeah, but definitely the physical stuff, you know, you can you can pretty much do as much as you want. You know, Greg yeah. will always be there to say, you know, there were a couple of times, I will admit, you know, that that Greg came over to me and said, could could you not be so loud? <laughs> you know, could you bring it down a notch, maybe, Mark? But you know, that's but that's the truth of Greg too. You know, it's got to have honesty. It's got to be true. It can't be, it can't be so over the top that people don't believe that it. You know what I mean? That it could. Yeah, of course. That it, it could happen. No, the, I mean it, it. hits the level just like just like raising hope. It it finds the level and has a lot of fun there, and it never breaks it. And it's it's such an interesting thing to watch right after seeing you in Mass, which I imagine was a different yeah. filmmaking experience in every way. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially yeah. four actors talking uh, for the whole film, and it's it's great yeah. that so many people have seen it now on home video. I would imagine you had extensive rehearsal with your castmates for that project. Well, um, I, I wish I could say that you were right, John, but um, unfortunately, really? we just, yeah, we really, we only had about uh, a day and a half um, of rehearsal in a, in a sort of one of those awful <laughs> rehearsal rooms in Midtown, you know, where we right. all gathered around a table. And, and, and honestly, I think we got through the script maybe a total of one time because everyone was sort of getting to know each other and telling stories and talking, really talking mm -hmm. and and sharing stuff about our own lives and 
And it really was wonderful. It was a, a real, a, a real sort of trust building kind of thing to do, you know, and yeah. we became incredibly close incredibly quickly so that we could have that trust for when we went to shoot um, in Idaho, where we where we um, filmed in a, a small town outside of Ketchum in, uh, called Haley, Idaho. And we filmed in a real church and we had about 12 days total uh, and, and everything we shot around the table, we shot in eight days. So, um, you know, in, in quite long takes, like 20, 20 page, 20 minute takes. Um, mm -hmm. It was an intense, very intense, but very beautiful and very wonderful experience that, that we all consider, you know, to be certainly one of the sort of most meaningful kind of experiences of all of our lives, really. I mean, for those who, who don't know, the film is about two sets of parents who've been encouraged by a, a therapist to meet after the child of one set of parents shoots and kills the child of the other parents. And it's devastating. You play the woman who's lost her child with Jason Isaacs as your husband. And mm -hmm. I, I, I got to tell you, in watching it, I just thought, oh, my God, this must have been one of the most fun for lack of a better word, experiences you ever had in film. It's just like a great four-character play that is just allowed to play out and trust the audience. It's such a rare piece of cinema. Yeah, I think what, what Fran Kranz did was really um, kind of marvelous and extraordinary. And what he did was he, he, he really did write a film. And... And, you know, and he's done it with such specificity um, and such intention and mindfulness, um, you know, and he spent three years writing the script and working on it to get it just right, um, you know, to the point where we, we changed very little when we got into that rehearsal room, um, you know, a, a, maybe a line of dialogue here or a cut of dialogue there. But, I mean, it really was all there and, and you know, sort of all we really had to do was kind of follow the music of the screenplay, you know? And, yeah. and even though it does sort of feel like a play, there's something I think really rather extraordinary about it being a film because you can really get in there and you can see, you know, editing plays such a strong role in this film. And mm -hmm. the editing is incredible. You, 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 you're looking at someone else while someone else is talking. You're seeing another person's reaction or another person's silence. You know, you can really get in there in a way that you can't on stage, really. And I think it's, it's actually one of the most cinematic pieces of, of film I think I, I'm, I've ever been a part of. It has incredible momentum and, and motion, forward motion. Like, it's just, it's like a locomotive, you know? It's just yeah. going full steam ahead. And till by the end, you, you do feel that you've reached some sort of moment of grace, do you know? Yes, it, that's you what know, it's all about. It, it's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was so happy that the film had, had really seems to have found its audience uh, since, you know, the crazy time of winter and, and no one going to cinemas right. still. And it's just been great seeing its its influence grow. I, I would be most remiss if I, if I didn't ask you a bit about uh, the repeal of Roe v. Wade, Martha, because you are not just yeah. a... Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked about this before, you know, when actors take fame and use sure. that capital to help others. And that's something mm -hmm. that I've always praised you for. But you're more than that in the case of women's reproductive rights. You've, you've been a real leader in every sense of the word on this. And 
I know it wasn't a surprise, but it must have still been shocking for you anyway. Absolutely. I mean, it's always shocking when something that um, is completely irrational uh, happens. I mean, even though one prepares for it and we, we did prepare for it and we've been prepared for it, it still um, it takes one's breath away to um, to, to uh, really feel the cruelty of a decision like this. Um, the, the cruelty and the the uh, the, the, the sadism really yes. of a decision yeah. like this, it, it can't help, but, but really take your breath away. Um, I mean, I think, look, uh, the decision aside, we all know it's not going to stop abortions from happening. And the climate is very different now than it was in 1973. I mean, right. some people like to say, well, you know, we're back to square one. Well, we're not actually, we've got the abortion pill. We've got mifepristone and misoprostol. We've got organizations like aidaccess.org that provide That's information right. and how to, on how to get the abortion pill. But we've also got the surveillance state and social media surveillance and, you know, considerations like, you know, the mother and, and daughter in Nebraska who've recently yep. been arrested because uh, of what they posted on their Facebook pages. You know, the, the cops turned in their login information, their whole conversations on Facebook to the prosecutor in Nebraska, and and they've been arrested. I mean, this is the level that they're willing to go to to punish people for doing something that is completely normal, that is completely uh, common, that is completely safe when it's done uh, legally and it's done properly under the supervision of a a medical professional or, you know, uh, or with the pills. They're very, very safe. I mean, you know, it's yeah, they it's could safer be than offered over the counter, actually. Yes, it's much safer, safer than childbirth in all 50 states. That's correct. So, you know, we we, we have options and we're not going to stop. And, you know, we're not going to stop having abortions. We're not going to stop helping people get abortions. We're going to continue funding them. And look, I think in the in the long run, what we really need to do is we need to ratify the ERA. Yes. Oh, and God, thank there, you. you know, we need to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And, you know, it, it's the president could actually do that if he wanted uh, to. Yes, today. he could. And and something else yeah. that we have now that we didn't have then is 77 uh, percent of the population that supports abortion rights in all or some cases. To say nothing of my favorite issue, the fact mm-hmm. that it's not actually banned in the Bible. Jesus never mentions them. Abortions are legal and free in Israel. And so the religious argument is uh, a lot of nonsense, but the religious argument is still used to do so much mm-hmm. shaming of women and men uh, yeah. over terminating pregnancies. And for me, one of the most important things that can be done is to destigmatize the procedure and, and, and yes. push back against the shaming. And that's really, Martha, why you've meant so much to me, because you are one of the few figures of your stature who has chosen to go public about your own experiences. And um, I've I've seen a lot of right wingers flip out about you doing it. But honestly, I I think it just shows how (laughs) pro-life you are and how you are doing the Lord's work, no matter what. What what was it that convinced that you you. choose to? I mean, look, of course. Well, the reason I wanted I mean, look, I. I want everyone to have the same access to the same excellent health care that I received when I had my abortions. And, 
I don't think that the uh, a human's uh, bodily autonomy and this, you know, inherent natural as well as civil right to control one's own body should be up for a vote. And, you know, I don't find anything controversial about that. I don't That's find right. anything scary about saying that. I think the controversy is in those who would take away that right and who would justify it with religion, while really at in reality, all it is is about control and about fomenting chaos. And, you know, and, and this is their sort of overall kind of whatever. We I won't waste time getting into that. But, you know, th that's their overall objective, I think. And, you know, that's why, look, when we founded AS4, which is the abortion busting, abortion stigma busting organization that I uh, helped co-found 10 years ago, um, we're actually having, we have our 10 year anniversary this year, which I'm not exactly happy about. I would have much mm -hmm. preferred to be rendered obsolete by now. But when we founded this organization, it was all about finding the intersection between art and artists voices and artist stories and, uh, and abortion stigma and, you know, busting that down as much as possible. We have our 10 year anniversary benefit this year. Broadway Acts for Abortion. We used to be called Broadway Acts for Women, but we realized, you know, the error of our ways there, that mm. abortion rights and reproductive justice affect all of us. That's they right. affect all of us. Men, women, trans people, non-binary folks, everyone is affected by these laws that take away a person's right to determine what is right for their own body. So... We made it Broadway Acts for Abortion, and we'll be at Broadway at 54 Below on October 2nd. I hope people can join us. I hope you'll join us, John. I'd love to. If you want love to. to. Oh, I've been Come doing a lot down. of stand-up. I've been doing a lot of shows. Uh, you have no idea how many fundraisers and shows I'm doing about it. And, uh, and it's great. Audiences Fantastic. are outraged. Women and men are appalled that women today have fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers had. And um, as a comedian, yes. you know, there's no shortage of... Uh, all kinds of fake Christians and bad guys to single out. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, I we, may, tell you, we may have fewer rights, but I, I, I just want to say we may have fewer rights, but we have more options. I love it. You know, I, I want to yell at you for getting off Twitter, but I can't because you're <laughs> doing work and you're doing such great work. And so you shouldn't be on Twitter. You should be doing Thanks. exactly the kind of creative work you're doing. And it's great to see you. And it's Thank great to you. see all the great drama and great comedy you're putting out in one year. Sprung is available on Amazon Freebie. Welcome to streaming, Martha. And thank you uh, so much for thank joining you. us. I look for Come back and see us again. Thanks so much, John. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot. Always good to see you. Take care. Take care. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. 
just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Let's go to the phones because y'all been waiting for a very long time. And I thank you for your patience. Marie in Atlanta. Hello. Hello, John. How are you? I'm great. It's good to hear from you. <laughs> you as well. Um, so I wanted to call in because I keep hearing even our liberal friends referring to what happened at Mar-a-Lago as a raid. I know. And Can I, you believe and it? You, and, you know, and you know, as an attorney, words have meanings for me. And they have very specific mm-hmm. meanings. Mm-hmm. Um, we have discussed we have discussed the raid versus search debate every day. Go on. Yes, a raid is usually something that the police do to interrupt ongoing crime. So you'll hear a raid on a bar where there's drug activity going on. That's right. Um, or you'll hear a raid on a strip club where there's underage people who are performing. Or it, that's what a raid is, where something is going on right that minute that the police come in and they scoop up everybody in the place. And what tends to happen is they all get arrested or a bunch of them do. Mm-hmm. They may search everybody on the premises. Um, they may search the premises as well. But the bottom line is that is more of a police action than a search warrant. A search warrant is the people on the premises may be moved away from where the things that are going to be searched are located. Yes. So that they can't interfere with the search. But the search is literally the execution of a search warrant. It is yeah, we're thank here you. to find certain things and look in certain places. And that would that be I'm sorry, would that would that be a, a search warrant where a judge had to determine there was probable cause to issue said search warrant? I, I hear that's what happens. And you actually have to, you know, like kind of swear it out in front of the judge so that in case the police lied about it, they'd get in trouble. And, and the judge may ask questions um, before the judge. I've really tried. It, so it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Marie, I, I want you to know I've really tried to to avoid saying the word raid. Uh, but I will admit it's much more fun to say it. It feels like, oh, yeah, it's the third act of Scarface. They raided his house. In reality, <laughs> they knew he was coming. I mean, they knew they were coming. There were no guns drawn. They weren't even wearing their FBI windbreakers. They waited until August when nobody was on the premises. It's closed for the season. There were no guests. There was only hotel staff and Secret Service agents who assisted the FBI in every step of the way. The Trump family could watch it all on closed circuit camera in progress and their lawyers were on site. It was very much uh, a search with a lawful warrant and not what we call a raid. Why do you think we're all saying it? I kind of feel like it's not so much uh, bloodthirsty liberals, but that the media is here for the clicks and the eyeballs and raid has a lot more exclamation points attached to it than search warrant. Exactly. Raid is sexier. I mean, if you've ever seen on television, you know, back in the days of Prohibition and when there was a raid on some joint and everybody's scrambling, you know, to head for the exits before they can get pinched, you know, it it, it raises that level of excitement um, yeah. as opposed to yeah. a search warrant that they knew was coming. That's just OK. I mean, I, I, I sort of think of it in terms of in the film. Um, oh, gosh, the one about Henry Hill. Um, Goodfellas. Goodfellas. When she's yeah, what, so when when the character um, Henry Hill's wife in character, she says, "Yeah, the police come and I I offer them coffee," 
You know, and, you know, mm-hmm. the other women, they spit on the floor. They curse them. Why? Just, you know, take the piece of paper and call the lawyer. Why would you spit on yeah. your own floor? Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I think that, that if you think about it in that context, you know, somebody hands you a piece of paper, they say, we're here to search for some stuff. You step out of the way. They do what they do. They don't tear up your house and then leave. Now, let us be clear about if you are somebody who's living in a poor neighborhood or in the trailer yeah, park. Uh-huh. Preach. Mm, it might not yep, be so cut. nice. Yeah. <laughs> it might oh, not it'll be feel so like a raid. So cordially. Yeah, oh, it will feel like a raid. Um, but, you know, what, what happened in his case, in, in Trump's case, that was, that was the Henry Hill version. It was just they That's come it. in, they hand you the piece of paper, they do what they got to do, and they leave. Oh, it's more than that, though. It was a celebration of privilege. The very fact that he had it for so long that they had to ask and then he returned insufficient documents. Then they did a subpoena. Then his lawyers lied about it. And then they finally scheduled at his convenience when there'd be no one there to take photos with their phones to finally go in there and get the government's property back. I, they bent over backwards to accommodate this particular lawless oh, gesture. Oh, yeah. So, well, so and, what do you? T- I wonder. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, please, Marie. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and, and and I can't help but wonder. I've I've read some things that I I don't know that they can be confirmed, but I've read some things that suggest that um, there was a, a fair amount of scrambling to pack up and leave uh, once Trump realized that no, in fact, he was not going to be able to stay. Um, and not so much, I, I would not give him the courtesy of the, the Brittany Griner excuse of, I was packing quickly. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, there are too many people involved in packing up for the White House, you know, to, to vacate the White House. That's right. And but, Brittany Griner has already done more time than Trump's ever going to do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, so in closing, things- Counselor, let me, what, what, what language should we use? We should not say raid to be responsible. I think you're right. I think saying raid feeds into Trump's victimhood narrative. Exactly. Ex- what do you recommend? That just, just executed a search warrant. That sounds good. That's it's it. got the word execute in it. I mean, that's, that sounds dramatic enough for me. <laughs> all right. That's all you need. Okay. When the feds executed a search warrant on Marl. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to do it. I'm, I'm trying, Marie. Yep. Thank you. Uh, you don't think he's ever going to see a day in jail, do you? I, I, you know, that, that fantasy side of me says, I want to see orange wearing orange, but yeah, I got a bad feeling it's never going to happen. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Let's enjoy it while we can. Thank you so much, Marie. Mm-hmm. Have a great evening. Linda in Iowa, how are you? Well, hello, John. I am. Um, boy, what you're talking about, how things are happening from the grassroots level in terms of censorship and everything. And then uh, I really enjoyed that long discussion you had, how much patience you showed with that other gentleman that was calling earlier saying... Wasn't he lovely? Lovely man. Lovely man. Oh, yes. Well, the thing of it is, I happened to work in the school system, and I was sitting in a preschool classroom. Oh, this has probably been about five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And the teacher was reading a book about families. And one of the things she said, and this family, why this little boy has two dads. And here a little kid pipes up in her classroom. Well, I've got two dads. And she said, yes, you do. Just strictly matter of fact, you know. Nice. Um, 
you know, it's just a shame these, you know, people just cannot accept that there are other legitimate ways of living people's lives. You know what I mean? Uh, More and more of us can accept it every year, though, don't you think? We've come a long way. Well, we have. And I don't know if you were aware of this story in Vinton, Iowa, a town of about 5,000. But um, they had a turnover, new staff of librarians, and she started, she hired an LBGTQ librarian. Okay. And then people started getting upset about it. One thing <laughs> led to another. She resigned, then he resigned. They ended up having to close the library. What? Oh, yes. my God. Because of a gay librarian? Yeah. What happens if they try to invade the arts? Oh, my gosh. And not only that, but a pastor's wife, she had checked out a book written by First Lady Jill Biden and yes. another one by Vice President Kamala Harris. In fact, Kamala Harris, in 2019, when she was running for president, stopped at this library in Vinton and read her book, Sometimes People March, that talks okay. about Black Lives Matter and the pride flag. Well, then someone else came on, on the town and says, well, you're you're promoting an LGBTQ agenda, Black Lives <laughs> Matter. You're doing all this leftist propaganda. Where's yes. your books about Trump? And where's your books about Pence? You know, and wow. the ugliness that, that surfaced in this small town. Yeah. And um, they ended up, like I said, they had to close the library because the staff moved out of town. <laughs> I, I, I want to say I'm shocked, but I am not. Yeah, and so the library board, they did bring it about themselves to provide some services, and a new person's going to come take over. But, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, um, oh, John, I've always (laughs) had this image of Iowa as being the last place of decency on earth. (laughs) I know that's not true, but I've always tried to think we have a state where a state with wholesome values. There's a lot of decency. It's very disappointing. No, I disagree. There's a lot of decency in Iowa, and it's getting better all the time. Humans are getting better all the time. When we're all old, you know, go go a couple decades from now, uh, homophobia is going to be considered a grotesque thing from a bygone era. I mean, we're witnessing an incredible bias, an ancient bias, die out in our own time. I'm sorry, but for every reason you want to show me where Americans are regressive and mean and shitty, I, I'll agree, but then I'll show you 10 areas where we are getting better. Because we are. We're growing. We're trying to get better. There's so many young people that are making their parents be better adults. I just, I got a lot of faith. I really do. Well, I've seen, you, you I've seen so too many right, hearts John. change. That's why I love talking to you. And I just have to, before I sign off, I just got to share my favorite Robert Redford moment. It's in what the movie it? Out of Africa. And he's in bed with Meryl Streep and he says to her, don't move. Oh my. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Never heard of that yeah, one, but he, I'll look it up. Yeah, that's a no. He's great in that movie. He he doesn't even try a British accent, and he still pulls it off. That's how good he is in that movie. Thank you yeah, so the natural, much. Natural, all the movies you talked about. He's just a wonderful, wonderful in the actor, and he a is, decent and he's man. An underrated actor too. He's an underrated actor. Go look at his performances in in uh uh oh God, Chris just yelled in my ear. Uh, his, uh, 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 an unfinished life. He's great in that. Uh, in the Last Castle, he's great in that. I love his old man roles. Uh, all is lost. He's amazing. He's just he gets to be a better actor every year. Thank you so much. 